0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Have you ever been reviled or persecuted or resented for your faith in Jesus Christ? How do we as Christians walk in such a way that when we experience reviling or persecution or resentment... That we actually show the love of Jesus Christ to even those who are reviling us. Well, in today's message, our special guest, Leslie Ludy is going to be talking about this idea of being reviled. Now, before we jump into that message for today, I want to remind you that Eric has been walking through two powerful series. One is on World War II, and the other is the spiritual biography of a nation. In both cases, he's walking through history, showing the spiritual principles that are illuminated throughout both World War II and the founding of America. If you've not listened to those series yet, I highly encourage you to check them out by going to Ellersleycom forward slash daily. Now, let's jump into the message for today as Leslie Ludi talks about how do you respond and how do you behave as a Christian who is being reviled?
1: I'm excited to be here this morning and excited to be able to talk to you about something that has been a really important aspect to my spiritual journey, and it's how to handle being misunderstood, being reviled for your stand for Jesus Christ. And I wasn't prepared for this when it first started happening to me, and I feel like it's one of the most important things I could share with you, especially those of you who are getting ready to go home after an intense week of just focusing on Jesus. One of the weapons of choice that I have found the enemy uses during times of spiritual forward movement in our lives is stirring up the people around us to come against us with attack, with criticism, with false accusation or misunderstanding. And a lot of times, when we're really passionately pursuing Jesus Christ and that starts to hit us, it can really throw us off track. It can cause us to take our eyes off of Jesus and focus inward and become confused, become discouraged. And it can even really push us away from God if we don't expect it and know how to handle it in a biblical way. It's really kind of going, going to go with the territory for anyone who is going to passionately seek after Jesus Christ with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength that people around you are not always going to approve of you. They're not always going to understand you. They're not always going to support you. And even though the Bible is clear about this, I think a lot of times as modern Christians, we're still really taken off guard when it happens. It's really, really easy to think, what did I do wrong? Why is this happening to me? I must you know, be way off track if people are not supporting me and criticizing me. And we live in a culture that really pushes the social approval. And so when we aren't socially approved, it can cause all sorts of havoc in our spiritual life. But if we have a biblical way of approaching those situations, it's so much easier to keep your eye on Jesus and not get distracted with all the noise, the criticism around you. So probably a lot of you have heard Eric share the story of when he was a young missionary. This was before I knew him, before we were married, but he talks about being in inner city New Orleans as a young missionary with his mission team, one of the first mission trips he ever went on. And it was, it was on Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras in New Orleans. So I can imagine the type of atmosphere that team was walking into. And their, their plan was to erect this wooden cross, you know, put, hold, build it and put it up. And I think it had wheels on it so they could go from, like, street to street. And they were going to just stand there with this cross in the middle of Bourbon Street. And they were going to hand out tracts. And Eric, who had not ever done that kind of evangelism, he was more like the subtle relationship evangelism, you know, just hopefully they'll kind of see Jesus in me if I'm like really subtle and quiet about my faith. That was his approach at that time. And so here is this team like, we're going to have this big cross and we're going to make this bold statement and we're going to hand out tracts. And he was just like, I'm super uncomfortable with this. And so he got, you know, he had to go because he was part of this team. He wasn't the leader of the team. He had no say in how they were approaching this. And they got there, they put this big, huge cross, it was a huge cross, and they put it right in the middle of Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras. So, you know, you've got drunk people, you've got screaming people, you've got people with all possible, you know, debauchery going on in their life, just all around you, and here you are standing there with the cross. He didn't want to stand very close to it, because he knew that the minute he went and said, hey, this is, you know, I'm part of this, this is, I'm with this cross, I stand with this, he knew as soon as he did that, he would have people screaming at him and cussing at him and throwing beer on him and all those things, because that's what was happening to the other missionaries. So he stood at, at a distance, and he was kind of that place that I think a lot of us come to in our Christian walk, where we're kind of waffling between the world and social approval and radical following Jesus, radically following Jesus. And that's where he was. He didn't really want to fully go over here, be with the cross, say, hey, I'm, I'm with this, but he didn't want to, of course, he wasn't with the partiers on the street. He was just waffling in the middle. It was really interesting. Everyone ignored him when he was waffling in the middle. And it wasn't until somebody said to him, hey, would you please come over here and hold up this cross? Somebody needed to leave or need a break or something. And he magnetically found, found himself going over to the cross, even though against his will, he didn't want to, but he did anyway. And he said the minute that he... He wrapped his arm around that cross. The minute it was clear to everyone there where he stood, he was saying, I'm with Jesus. He was saying it boldly. It was like he had this tremendous joy that washed over him, this incredible peace and just exhilaration. And when he was in that no man's land, that middle ground, that waffling in between, he didn't have peace at all. He was miserable. That's where a lot of us are in our Christian life. When we stay in that middle ground, we're not really boldly saying, I'm with Jesus. We're not really over here. We're just kind of hanging out in the middle in that gray territory. It's miserable, and, but people leave us alone, right? <laughs> they, they don't pay attention to us unless we start to really take a stand for Jesus, unless our life starts to make them uncomfortable. And so when he wrapped his arm around that cross, his life was saying, hey, I'm with Jesus. I'm taking a bold stand, and everyone knows where I stand now. And guess what? He became the brunt of attention, negative attention from everybody on that street. He had people throw things at him. He had beer spilled on him. He had people scream at him. And yet he had never been happier. He had this huge smile on his face because he knew that he was taking a stand for Jesus. He knew that he was not ashamed of his faith. And that's the way God has called all of us to live. And it's only when we do that, when we, whatever that means for us in our own life, when we boldly say, I'm with Jesus, that we will have that sense of, I'm exactly where God wants me to be. If we're miserable and we don't feel like we're where God wants us to be, a lot of times it's because we're in that gray territory. We're not really taking that strong stand So everybody knows who we stand with. And in in our day and age, it's getting harder and harder, more uncomfortable to make sure that everybody knows, hey, I'm with Jesus, and I am not ashamed of that. The minute we make that decision and we go over to that cross and we put our arm around that wood and we say, I'm with Jesus, is the minute we're going to become the brunt of negative attention. We will not be socially approved anymore. And I think in modern Christianity, there have been a lot of misconceptions that you can blend into the world, you can be a part of the world, you can be approved by the world, you can, the world can think you're amazing, and somehow that makes you a good witness for Jesus Christ. And so we need to count the cost and understand that that is not what Jesus says. In fact, he says, if the world hates you, you're on the right track, because it hated me before it hated you. If the world loves you, that's a problem, because that, they loved the false prophets as well. So it's almost like a measuring stick of where we're at spiritually. If everybody loves you and speaks well of you, Jesus says, watch out. You're not where you need to be. If people don't like you, if they disregard you, if they ridicule you, if you, if, they, if they leave you out of things, if they criticize you because you're taking such a strong stand and you're living so boldly for Jesus, Jesus says, rejoice. You're on the right track. You're blessed if that's the path that you're on. Amy Carmichael wrote in her book, If, this is a very convicting statement to me, if the praise of others elates me and their blame depresses me, then I know nothing of Calvary love. How often do we live like that where if somebody is approving of us, if the world is applauding us, if we have popularity, we're, you know, on an emotional high, and then if others start to blame us or criticize us or exclude us, then we're on a downward spiral emotionally and we base our emotions on what other people think of us. And so if we're approved, we're high. If we're not approved, we're low. And Amy Carmichael is saying that is not Calvary love. Calvary love was the love that made itself of no reputation and took the form of a bondservant for our sake. And that is the the path Jesus has called us to walk. Jesus says, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And revile in this verse means to pursue with hatred and to detest. So it's a pretty strong word. People may actually pursue you with hatred and detest you for no other reason than the fact that you are standing boldly with Jesus. Are you ready for that? Are you prepared for that? Or is that going to throw you off track spiritually? If you choose the narrow way of the cross, that is what you have signed up for. And it doesn't mean you're always going to be reviled at every moment of every day, but it means that will come into your life the more you take a bold stand for Jesus Christ. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I've often told the story of Stephen in the book of Acts because this was such a, a revelation to me when I studied his martyrdom to recognize that he was at the pinnacle of reviling and being detested and being hated by the world when they were stoning him. I mean, everything that he said his whole entire life offended them so much that they were, they were just ripping their clothes and gnashing their teeth and screaming at him and pushing him out of the city and picking up stones to throw him. They hated him so much that they wanted him dead. You cannot get uh, less social approval than Stephen had at that moment. And yet at that same moment, he had a standing ovation from the king of all kings. He looked up and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, welcoming him into his presence, saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he could care less about the fact that everyone around him literally despised him because Jesus was standing and saying, I approve of this, this way that you have chosen to live. I welcome you into my presence. And I don't know about you, but I know which one I want. If I'm going to choose the applause of heaven or the applause of this earth, I know which one I want. So don't expect radically following Jesus Christ to win you popularity contests. If you have dreams and aspirations of, you know, becoming a famous athlete or a famous movie star or a famous this or that and you think, Oh, I'm gonna just the world's gonna love me and then I'll slip in some witnessing tactics here and there. Give all the glory to God. You know, you may be able to win popularity for a season, like Eric Little. He was a very strong Christian and he took a very bold stand for Jesus Christ in the Olympics when he would refused to run on Sunday, and he still won the gold medal. He had a lot of approval for a season, but when he chose to give up athletics and become a missionary in China, he no longer had approval from the world. He could have gone that path of continuing to become a famous athlete and tried to witness on the side, but the more he followed after Jesus Christ, the more he said yes to the call of God in his life, the less and less he was approved. So he had his moment where the world applauded him. And then they recognized, wow, he's, this is actually more important to him than a gold medal. This is actually more important to him than being a famous athlete. Okay, we don't get this guy. We're going to forget about him. So don't expect following Jesus Christ to win popularity contests. In fact, you cannot have popularity with the world, approval from the world for the long haul, and also have a radical devotion to Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible very clearly says. So I think it's important when you are criticized, attacked, or reviled because of your stand for Jesus, it's really important. I know it's been really important for me to understand what the Bible says about it, how to respond to it correctly, and why it even happens. Because for me, I tend to turn inward and become very self-evaluating and, okay, what did I do wrong? What did I say wrong? And a lot of times, the only reason reviling is happening is not necessarily what you said or didn't say. It's because light and darkness are constantly at war with each other. The spirit of Light that you are exuding through your life is in direct contrast to the darkness that is all around you, as it says in John, where they loved darkness more than light. And so, when they see light, they they want to push it away. That's why it happens a lot of times. It's not anything you did or didn't do specifically, it's the fact that you were exuding the light of Jesus Christ and it offends the darkness around you. The first time I remember being really reviled was kind of a bizarre story. I was in high school. And I had just radically given my life to Jesus Christ. I was really attempting to shine the light of Jesus everywhere I went. I wasn't preaching in the hallways of my public school or anything like that. I was just smiling and turning outward and trying to exemplify, you know, example of Christ. And this girl who was very much dark and um, just covered in darkness with very dark clothing, very sour expression, Just she, you could tell she had a lot of darkness in her life. And... She didn't, I had never even spoken to her, but she saw me. I went into a locker room and she followed me in there and she started screaming at me. She started cussing at me and I turned, I had my back turned to her because I was getting something out of a locker and she grabbed my hair and yanked my neck back and continued to scream at me, like out, out of control screaming. It so shook me as a 16 year old girl, like what did I ever do to her? What is wrong with her? What is going on? I didn't do anything. And I don't remember what, how the situation ended. It didn't end in, in like some girl fight or anything like that. I wasn't, I didn't respond. I just kind of stood there. She left. And I remember going home and talking to my parents and some other Christian friends. And they were saying, it's because the spirit of light in you is offending the darkness that she's carrying around. There's nothing you said or didn't say. It's just, there's just that war between light and darkness and that was my first lesson. Okay, just living, just exuding, just abiding in Jesus Christ is going to offend some people. In Acts when they were offended by Stephen, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They were not able to resist and it made them furious. They didn't like the fact that he was he had something more powerful than they had and that's what 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 caused them to hate so much. Hate him so much. In John 3.20, it says, Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So that is a lot of times what's going on in the people around you. They hate the light and they don't want to come to the light because when the light shines on their life, they realize there are a lot of things that are going to be exposed that they do not want exposed. And that brings me to the second point of why reviling often happens is because reflecting Christ's nature exposes sin in other people and they feel convicted and they want to justify themselves. So again, it's not always something that you should self-evaluate and say, why does this person hate me? Why do they not like me? Why are they reviling and attacking me? So often it's just what the way that you're living, the decisions that you are making is exposing sin in their own life and it makes them very uncomfortable and they want to justify themselves. And so often that's been what's going on whenever somebody has attacked me is it's, it's it's not even anything I said, it's just the way I'm living my life and they don't like it because it makes them feel like they're doing something wrong. A lot of times the decisions I've made, I haven't broadcast those decisions and said, hey, everybody around me, you need to do exactly what I'm doing. I've just been living in obedience and that bothers people. It says in 1 Peter four four, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. Why? You're not deserving of that abuse, are you? But they, you're not joining them in their reckless and wild living, and that's why they're heaping abuse on you. And, and then Jesus says to the Pharisees in Luke sixteen five, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And again, here's another Pharisee who was challenging Jesus, and it says he, he wanting to justify himself, said, To Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now Jesus is saying, "Love your neighbor as yourself," and he's trying to justify. So he's like, "Well, who is my neighbor exactly?" And justify means to defend or to declare your own righteousness. Now I've been on both sides of self-justification, so I understand this. I remember when I was in a position of being confronted and um, challenged by a godly older sister in Christ. It was it was not something i was prepared to receive even though she was very gentle and loving in how she brought this um, correction into my life or this challenge into my life she was challenging me about my standards and what movies i was watching it's one in particular that i was you know recommending and everything and i thought it was a good movie and she was just asking me some questions like why as a christian why do you feel okay with this you know is this really god honoring movie and i was like hey, you know who does she think she is to say that to me? And I remember thinking, I need to pray for her. She's really got a lot of self-righteousness in her life. And have you ever felt that way? It's like, oh, that person. And that's what I was doing. I, was to- I didn't at all look inward and say, maybe she has a point. I was like totally attacking her. I didn't do it verbally, but inwardly I was attacking her and I was like, this girl, she is so judgmental. She is so legalistic. And yet, in reality, when I started to look back on the situation, she was being obedient to the Spirit of God. She was very loving, very gentle, and not, she wasn't judgmental. She was just challenging me in a gentle way as a godly older sister, but I was so entrenched in self-justification that I couldn't receive that at first. And it wasn't until about a year later that I recognized, you know, she did that in love and it was totally appropriate, and I was the one in the wrong, but I was self-justifying, so I made her the enemy. So that can oftentimes happen. And then I've also been on the other side of self-justification, where I've been reviled and attacked and criticized because somebody on the other end was, was trying to justify sin in their own life. I remember one of my books, which is on purity, and it's for girls, but it's on purity and godly relationships. This one girl in college, she was a Christian girl, loved this book. This was like her favorite book. She highlighted all these things that she loved about this book. She shared it with everybody. And then she went through a really rough patch in her life. She fell into immorality. And she hated this book. Like overnight, she decided she absolutely hated this book. She, taught, she told me this later. She would like rip pages out of it. She threw it across the room. I don't know why she didn't just throw it away, but she like kept it in her room with her and then like destroyed the book because she hated it so much. And basically because it reminded her of where God wanted her to be and that she had fallen away. And then she repented. She gave her life back to Christ. She got right with God and then became her favorite book again. And so she, was, she had this really interesting love-hate relationship with this book. I didn't know any of this until way later. But it was just interesting to see how her response to just words of truth was so different depending on where she was at spiritually. Another reason that reviling happens, so we've talked about light and darkness being at war with each other. We've talked about self-justification and why we are often the brunt of attack because of other people's self-justification. And the, another reason is because a lot of times it's something the enemy use, uses. He stirs up strife towards us in other people because he wants to discourage us and he wants to cause us to give up. Whatever we're pursuing, he wants to get us to turn back. And so if people in our life have, have spiritual weakness, they've allowed things into their life that has given the enemy an access point, oftentimes the enemy will get in there and stir them up against us because his design is to discourage and weaken us. When we were first starting Ellerslie, we, we had gone from traveling and speaking to thousands of people all over the country, and God was saying, you know, I want you to focus on smaller groups and go deeper with them and really give them a strong foundation. Because when we can, you know, could speak for one hour or two hours to a few thousand people, you can plant seeds, but you can't go all that deep. You can't really water those seeds that were planted. So we were getting that strong burden for discipleship and we thought, well, this is actually, a lot of people in our life actually told us this is a step backwards for you guys. You're going from speaking to these big, huge crowds to smaller groups of people. And so I wasn't at all prepared that as we were starting Ellerslie, we would become the brunt of incredible attack. Because in my mind, I was like, well, we're being obedient to God, but we're kind of taking a step back. Our ministry is shrinking. And yet the enemy knew what was gonna happen at Ellerslie, and he didn't want that to happen. And he, he he pulled out all the stops to get us to quit before we even started. I mean, I've never been through so much attack as the months leading up to starting Ellerslie, that first semester. It was like all hell just broke loose on us. And the major attack that we received was reviling. It was like he took the, the weaknesses in anybody in our life, family members, friends, other, even other Christians, and stirred them up against us. And there was false accusation. There was extreme criticism. There was extreme discouragement. And we, I mean, we were accused of terrible things in that time. And some of those people we had loved, we had sacrificed for, we had invested into. And so for me, I... I wasn't totally sure how to handle that. I'm not necessarily, I don't have the kind of temperament that just kinda rolls with it. I'm a little bit more serious, more melancholy in my temperament, so I can take people's criticisms a little bit too seriously. And I was very strongly tempted to quit and to give up before we even started. In fact, there was a time um, that I was pretty seriously considering, I wanna change my name, I wanna leave the country and get a new identity. I mean, that's how bad it was, <laughs> like, to be completely honest, I was like, and I even wrote it down, I, I won't tell you what my new name was going to be, just in case I ever have to do it, <laughs> but I was trying to convince Eric that we should do this, like, we both change our name, this is what it would be, and we'll go live here, and we'll just disappear, because the pain, the pain is very real, when people are attacking you, when people don't understand you, when you're being falsely accused, it's the deepest pain that either Eric or myself has ever walked through, and so... Now, you may not ever be falsely accused to that point where you want to change your name and leave the country, but very likely, if you continue on this path, you either have experienced some reviling in your life or you will if you are pursuing that set-apart life with Jesus Christ. And remember that the enemy does not like your stand for Jesus, and he wants to discourage you from what you are called to do and how you are called to live. So how do we... Get God's perspective on reviling. Now that we understand kind of where it stems from, how do we get God's perspective on it and and respond to it in a godly way? So first of all, it's really important to understand that it is an honor to share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. It's an honor. It's not shameful. It's an honor. And I always have looked at false accusation and criticism as a shameful thing. And God had to show me, okay, you're looking at this completely wrong. This is an honor for you to walk through this for my sake. In Acts 5, uh, in the chapter, in Acts chapter 5, it talks about the apostles being called before the council and beaten, and they were commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and then they were let go. And the way they responded to that was so interesting. I don't know how you would feel if you were taken in front of you know, the religious leaders of the day you were you know, confronted and you were beaten and commanded that you shouldn't keep speaking in the name of Jesus. But what they did was they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his sake. They didn't feel sorry for themselves. They didn't go to counseling. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy for something like this. And shame in that verse means to dishonor and to insult and to treat with contempt. So they were rejoicing that they were dishonored, that they were insulted, and that they were treated with contempt. And I think that is absolutely so counterintuitive of what most of us would want to do in a situation like that. And yet that, they understood, they could see clearly that it was an honor. And, and Paul said a very similar thing in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. It's this way that we can share in a very small measure in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. We can never repay him for what he did for us, for what he gave for us, but even in a small measure, if we're able to share that fellowship of his sufferings, it's an honor. It's a blessing. And Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. I think that's really interesting. He, doesn't, he, does, he is speaking so bluntly. It's just like, if the world hates you, you, you don't don't be surprised, it hated me first. That's the way it's going to be. It's not like, oh, you poor thing, you know, I just know that this is going to happen, but I'm, I'm here for you, which he is here for us. But his response in this verse is, hey, get used to it. The world hated me before it hated you. In 1 Peter two twenty through 21, if when you do what is right and you suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example for at leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So this is something we are called to, something we are given as a privilege. As it says in Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So It's a privilege, it's a calling, it's an opportunity to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And it says in Hebrews 5 8, though he was a son, speaking of Jesus, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So, this is something that can actually deepen our relationship with Jesus Christ, strengthen our understanding of what obedience is, and help us share in the fellowship of, of his sufferings, which means we draw closer to Jesus Christ through suffering, through false accusation, through reviling, if we respond to it correctly. Another Perspective—a godly perspective on reviling and criticizing, being criticized—is that it shows you're on the right track in your spiritual life. You're to rejoice and be exceedingly glad when you're reviled and persecuted, and you're to be concerned when all men speak well of you, because that is how they treated the false prophet, prophets. And in Luke sixteen fifteen, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So, just because the world is applauding something and cheering something on, does not mean that it's something God applauds and cheers on, and we need to get our priorities straight. Whose applause are we really living for? In Hebrews eleven thirty six through 38, it talks about a list of all that the heroes of God, the heroes of the faith, had to go through. Chains and imprisonment and being stoned and sawn in two and tempted and slain with the sword, etc., 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 and Jesus says of whom the world was not worthy. These are the people that Jesus gives that standing ovation to, and yet the world is like you know, who needs them? God has a completely different value system than the world. Now, what if reviling comes from other Christians? I think this is probably one of the biggest challenges I've ever faced in my spiritual journey is what if reviling comes from other Christians? You kind of expect it from the world. You kind of expect it from non-believing friends. But what about within the church? How do you respond to that? In John 16, 2, Jesus said, he's telling the disciples, here's what's going to happen after I you know, go through my transfiguration and I'm gone, I'm no longer walking on this earth, this is what's going to happen. They will put you out of the synagogues. The time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. And I thought that verse is so interesting because there are religious systems of the day that actually believe they're on God's side when they're coming after you. And that, you'll see that even today. But back in this day, people who, like Saul, before he became Paul, he really believed that he could stomp out the Christians, he was honoring God. He was doing God's service. And that's why he was so zealous to persecute the church. And it wasn't until God literally knocked him flat on his face and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That he woke up and said, whoa, really? I, I thought I was doing you a favor, God. I didn't know. And that's so often what's happening is like re- the religious system of the day They get their eyes off Jesus Christ, they get fixated on something else, and they think, hey, you know, this person is living too radically for Jesus or whatever, If we go after them, you know, "We're, we're doing something good. It's important to remember that the persecution of Jesus Christ, of the apostles and of the prophets came in large part from the religious system of the day, not necessarily from the Romans, but from the religious leaders of the day, from their own community, the religious leaders in their own community. We have had many experiences, Eric and I, of being reviled by other Christians, and a lot of times again, it's the enemy getting into those relationships and stirring up strife within the body of Christ. And a lot of times, it's well, they have they have an access point in their life, and or they're convicted by something we're doing, and they want to justify or whatever for whatever reason. One of the things that I've been confused about when when uh, criticism comes from within the body of Christ is how seriously do I take it? Like if people are heaping criticism on me, but they're Christians, do I take that seriously? Is that something that's coming from God? And I remember one time an older man that was a Christian that Eric and I had looked up to, he did have an anger problem, a very serious anger problem, which we didn't realize at the time that we were in a relationship with him and kind of spending time with him. We found this out later that he actually had to leave other ministries because of anger issues, but of course, we didn't know any of that, and we just looked at him as like a godly older man that we respected, but one day, something triggered in him, and he began to not just criticize us, but scream accusations at us, especially towards Eric, and it was so jarring because it was delivered in a very ungodly way. It was filled with profanity, with cursing, and it was just out of control, And we were really shaken because we were young Christians at the time, and we thought, what if there's some some validity to what he's saying? He was accusing us of absolutely terrible things. And we were led to the book of James where it says, "'Out of the same mouth proceed both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does the spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh.'" Who is wise and understanding among you, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Now, good conduct and meekness are the two things that would categorize someone who is correcting you in a godly, Christ-honoring way. Meekness and good conduct. Good conduct means Christ-like conduct, lifestyle and behavior. And meekness, which means mildness of disposition and gentleness of spirit. So, We need to be open to receive correction, especially from spiritual leaders and those we look up to in the body of Christ. But if it's not coming in a Christ-like way, if it's not breeding a deeper relationship with Christ, if it's basically just delivered in a very fleshly, angry tirade, a very worldly way, blessing and cursing blended together, we know that it's not God's message to us because it's not the way he communicates to us. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if someone's coming to you wanting to you know, see something change in your life, their goal would be peace. Peace in that relationship, peace in your life, peace in your relationship with God, not strife and anger and discord. So what is the difference between fleshly anger and reviling versus godly exhortation and correction? This was really important for me to understand since so much reviling that I've experienced has come from within the body of Christ. One is sown in peace and love, the right kind of correction. And that brings greater spiritual strength into your life. And the other is sown in anger and in pride, and it just brings discouragement and discord and tension into the body of Christ. There are times when we have to speak very boldly and bluntly and speak the truth without, you know, without, you know, we have to, we have to really proclaim truth, but it can still be done in a loving, honoring way gentle Christ-like way even if we're being bold in how we speak truth. So if someone is coming to you with accusation and you want to know if it's really coming from God or from somebody's just fleshly sinful attitude. Ask some questions. Was this person Christ-like in their words and attitudes? It may sting. Like the the girl who corrected me with my standards for movies. It wasn't a pleasant conversation. It wasn't what I wanted to hear, but she did it in a very loving way. Her desire was to see greater spiritual strength in my life. And if I had asked that question, I would have had to say, yes, she was very Christ like in how she did I didn't like what she had to say, but she was Christ like in how she said it. Were they gentle? Were they peaceable in their correction? Were they seeking to bring greater peace into your life and into the body of Christ? And did they have a position to speak into your life? Were they marked by humility and love or arrogance and anger? So remember, the fruit of godly correction is that you're going to be drawn closer to Jesus Christ if you really receive it. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. The fruit of fleshly correction, an angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. It just creates greater discord and havoc. So when you are criticized, attacked, reviled, misunderstood, falsely accused, How do you respond in a Christ-like way? These are the things that have most helped me in these seasons of my life. The first one is not to turn inward. It's it's really a temptation of the enemy. You might be just going about your your life and being obedient the way you know to be obedient, and suddenly you're attacked. Somebody just decides they cannot stand the way you're living your life, and they come against you. One of the enemy's best tools, his sneakiest tools, I should say, is to get us to turn inward because of that. It wasn't, we weren't turned inward before it happened, but once it happens, we want to turn inward. And whether we become bitter and we start to nurse like, our wounds against this person and we're like, how could they do that? I can't believe they treated me that way. And you just like, kind of stir up bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment. Or you become obsessed with what did I do wrong? What did I say wrong? And you become really paranoid about how you're acting. And I remember one time when we were going through a lot of false accusation, we, we spent several days just trying to reflect inwardly. Like, God, show us if we're missing something. Show us if there's any truth in these accusations. Show us, you know, what we need to change in our life. That sounds really spiritual, right? But God said to us one morning, it was just a clear, not an audible voice, but just a clear sense, this is a distraction. This is a distraction. You, are, you were focused on me. Your eyes were upward and outward, then this happened, and all you're thinking about is yourself and turning inward and self-evaluating. This is a distraction. Commit it to me. Lay it at my feet and move on with what I've called you to. Don't let it be a distraction. And that was like a wake-up call for us. It's like, oh, wow, okay, let's put that aside. Amy Carmichael wrote this. If the praise of man elates me and his blame depresses me, then I know nothing of Calvary love. We already looked at that one. If I feel injured when one lays to my charge things which I know not forgetting— that my Savior trod this path to the end, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I'm perturbed by reproach and misunderstanding, if I cannot commit the matter and go on in peace and in silence, remembering Gethsemane and the cross, then I know nothing of Calvary love. That has been God's challenge to me. When that kind of attack is coming against me, and I know it's not necessarily coming from God, it's a distraction in my life, and the enemy's trying to use it, God is saying, commit the matter to me. And move on in peace and in silence. Don't try to self-justify. Don't try to defend yourself. Don't try to self-evaluate. Don't try to become obsessed with whatever they're saying and thinking of you. Commit it to me and go on in peace. Let me defend you. And when we look to him, as it says in the Psalms, when we keep our eyes fixed on him and not on whatever noise is happening around us, that is when we will be radiant and our faces will never be ashamed. You know, the enemy wants to get us to look down and turn inward and be ashamed, Uh, you know, if somebody doesn't like us or they don't approve of us. But Jesus says, you look to me and your face will be radiant and you will never be covered. Your face will never be covered with shame. Another way to respond is to rejoice. This is a direct command from Jesus. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for indeed great is your reward in heaven for in like manner their fathers did to the false prophets. Now that is so opposite of how we naturally want to respond. And I'm not, naturally that type of bubbly person who just says oh this is all good you know it's water off a duck's back i'm just going to be happy and move on you know my personality is more like the world has come to an end and you know this is the worst thing i've ever walked through i can take it way too seriously and jesus says rejoice and leap for joy let's get some heavenly perspective here and so it's a discipline of soul for me now rejoicing does not mean just drum up all these happy, warm, fuzzy feelings. I've had to realize that. It's a decision of the will to say, Lord, I agree with what you say. This is an honor. This is a blessing. This is an opportunity. This is part of what I'm called to as a Christian. I agree with your word. I command my soul to rejoice and look at this as an opportunity rather than a curse and something negative. And that is when my emotions begin to line up. You don't wait for your emotions to be in place and then rejoice. You rejoice first and then let your emotions come up to that place especially if you have my kind of personality. <laughs> it's what you have to do. And you can't be worried or bitter or introspective and self-evaluating you know, in this really intense negative way and be rejoicing at the same time. So it kind of pulls you out of that pit. So whether you feel like it or not, choose to agree with God's word and put emotions in their place. Another way to respond is to overcome evil with good. And so whoever is coming against you If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is a power greater than any hatred or mocking or reviling, and it's the power of godly love, of this incredible sacrificial love that loves and gives and puts the other person first even when they don't deserve it. And that is more powerful than their hate towards you. If you read any story of a persecuted Christian in history, you will see, whether it's Richard Warmbrand or Corey ten Boom or any of these people who suffered greatly, it was the love that exuded from their life in the face of hatred that changed the whole prison cell, changed the guards, changed everyone around them because love was more powerful. God's love is more powerful. And you can overcome evil with that kind of love. And overcome means to conquer and to come off victorious And you can overcome it with good, which means to be pleasant, joyful, happy, excellent, upright, and honorable in your behavior. Doesn't mean that they're proper in their response, but you have control over your response. As it says in 1 Peter 3, 9, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So it's that purposeful decision to bless when you are cursed. And that takes the grace of God, that ability of His Spirit working within us to do what we could not do on our own, because it's not natural to love and bless and serve somebody who's coming against you. Otto Koenig, who's famous for the pineapple story, tells a story of some of his enemies in the tribes in New Guinea that were threatening him and his family with weapons. And these enemies then became wounded in this battle, and he had to make a decision whether to save their life lives or just let them die. And he wanted to let them die because they had made his life so miserable. He chose to save their lives, and he overcame the evil with his love. They served him for the rest of their lives. They honored him for the rest of their lives because he chose to love and serve in the face of their hatred. It's a really powerful story. Another response is to resist the enemy, to recognize that a lot of times this type of attack is coming directly from the enemy, and we have authority through Jesus to take a stand against it. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, and spiritual hosts of wickedness, and that is a key verse for this because we so often look at the person who's attacking us and think, that's my enemy. But in reality, we're wrestling against principalities and powers in the unseen world, and that's where we need to take our stand. So we are to resist in the authority of Jesus' name. And I'm going to skip over some of those scriptures, but James 4:7 is a key one. And when you sense that that, is, that kind of attack is coming into your life, to say, in the authority that I have in Jesus, I resist this attack from the enemy. And it, he has to flee. That's what it says in the Word of God. He cannot continue to uh, hinder what you are called to do when you take a stand against him. No weapon formed against you shall prosper and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. That was a verse that God gave me. It's from Isaiah 54:17 God put that verse on my heart when we were being attacked and falsely accused right before we started Ellerslie. There were so many threats. There were so many what ifs hanging in the air. What if these people you know, spread these rumors about us and destroy what we're trying to do in starting this discipleship school? And God was saying, keep your eyes on me, commit it to me, and move on. No weapon formed against you will prosper when you are abiding in me. And that's exactly what we saw happen. So really quickly, I don't have very much time here. I think I'm already over time. But I'm going to give you just a couple last things to keep in mind. How do you live your set-apart life, your life focused on Jesus Christ, when they don't understand you? All of you know who they are in your life. It's friends, it's family, it's roommates, it's, you know, coworkers, people who do not get it, who do not get your life. They don't like the way you're living. They don't approve of it. And how do you honor God when you're trying to live your life as he's called you to live and they do not understand? I just want to breeze through these really quickly because I I think they're really helpful. I know they have been for me. First and foremost, always put Christ first. If you desire peace at all costs. Now, the Bible does say live at peace with all men as far as it depends on you. But if you choose just peace in your relationships above your relationship with Jesus Christ, that can lead to compromise. Whoever confesses me before men, Jesus says, him will I also confess before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so when we are living out our convictions, it may lead to relational tension. That is just sort of something that goes with the territory. And Jesus talks about that in Matthew 10, how he, his presence on this earth is going to set father against daughter and mother and son and you know, breed those family tensions because we oftentimes will have to choose between our stand for Jesus Christ and the approval of those around us. Amy Carmichael said, if I'm afraid to speak the truth, lest I lose affection, or lest the one concerned say, you do not understand, that I know nothing of Calvary love. If I blunt the edge of truth speaking not right things, but smooth things, then I know nothing of Calvary love. So keep that in mind. Always put Christ first. Uh, there was an experience that Eric and I had when we were in a friends and family kind of situation. They asked us to watch their favorite movie. This is when we were very first married. We didn't really ask what the movie was or anything about it. We just agreed to watch it. And then as they were playing it, we recognized this is not a movie we should be watching. It was filled with profanity and crudeness. And we were trying to figure out a way to get out of it, but the movie had already started, but we didn't want to cause like social discord or whatever and so we we sort of sat and endured through the whole movie and I remember being in our room that night and just feeling so slimed just so why did we sit through that that was not honoring to God we feel like we need to you know be cleansed from everything that we saw in that movie and we recognized as awkward as it would have been we should have asked them in the most loving way possible to not you know to not have that movie going Instead, we sat there and we participated in something ungodly because we didn't want to offend. So we realized, always put Christ first. Yes, it may lead to tension, but he is more important than just having everybody think well of you all the time. Protect your relationship with Christ. Honor him in the way that you're living. Don't compromise in order to keep the peace around you. But also have the right attitude. If you are needing to take a stand and say, you know, I can't watch that movie or I can't participate in that activity or I I don't want to be in this conversation, Do it in a spirit of meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit, reverence and fear of God, which is the opposite of pride and arrogance. Don't just decide, well, I'm taking a stand for truth so I can be prideful and arrogant and critical in how I take my stand. Do it in the spirit of Christ, and that is what's going to make a difference in their lives. If you storm out of the room and slam doors and go on a tirade and you're arrogant and prideful, it's not going to actually bring change in their life. But gentleness and love can, even though it may take some time. And finally, don't underestimate the power of prayer. If there are the they in your life that really don't understand you, that really don't approve of you... Pray for them, don't underestimate the power of prayer. You may or may not know Eric's story of how he radically gave his life to Jesus Christ in college, but it was his older sister who was a very strong believer and he and his younger brother had basically mocked and reviled her most of her life because of her stand for Jesus Christ. Always made fun of her, called her the saint in a mocking way and yet she, she loved them and she prayed for them for years and years and years and years and she gave Eric a book when he was in college and it, it changes life. It's what God used to bring him to a true relationship with Jesus Christ. And the first person that he called when he put that book down and gave his life to Christ with his, was his sister. Because he knew that in spite of how he had treated her all those years, she had never stopped praying for him and loving him. And it was her faithful prayers that God used to win him to Christ. So don't let the enemy destroy your faith for your friends and your family members. A lot of times those that you've grown up with are the ones that you're thinking they're hopeless, they're never going to change. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. Remember, it's God who is going to make the change in their life. You can be an instrument through praying faithfully for them. And here are a couple of final quotes from Amy Carmichael. If in dealing with one who does not respond, I weary of the strain and slip from under the burden, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I fear to hold another to the highest goal because it is so much easier to avoid doing so, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Hold them to that high standard through love, through prayer, through a consistent example, and God can use you as an instrument of change in their lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for showing us that we have the privilege to share in the fellowship of your suffering, and thank you that you have given us these amazing tools and truths to walk through reviling in a way that honors you and to even bring about life change in other people's lives. I pray that for every single one of us, we would really embrace this kind of path of suffering and not go after social approval, but take that bold stand to say, I'm with Jesus and I'm unashamed, even if it means that others don't understand me and don't approve of me. Lord, I pray that our lives would bring you glory in this area. Go before us today and may your presence be seen and heard and known in a very powerful way in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com.